Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. I don't know if you uh, saw the tent when you're coming in today, the red and white striped tent that's up now. And just going to ask for the next few moments, at least, that you refrain from daydreaming about your food objectives for this week, okay? We've got a lot of things to go through this week. I know street fair is right around the corner. And by the way, this is salmon, okay? And I think that I wear it well, just so everybody knows. We're feeding all that. Thank you. I appreciate that. I know, I just get a lot of grief about this stuff. So, hey, before we jump into our message today, I just want to speak real briefly about Saturday service. Uh, As many of you know, for the last two years, we kind of offered a Saturday service that ran from October to May. I just wanted to come in front of you today as a congregation and let you know that we're not going to be renewing that service this coming year. Uh, There are multiple reasons why Saturday service isn't going to be renewed, but, but it starts with the vision. The vision was to create a Saturday service for those who had obligations to be at work on Sunday. And that was the vision, and it was a good and a godly division, uh, vision. Unfortunately, it just never really came to fruition. Uh, it never came uh, to where we thought it was going to go. And because of kind of the lack of growth in that area, uh, we found it hard to find the kind of resources and volunteers to make it sustainable. And often we were robbing resources and volunteers from Sunday to make Saturday work. And look, we're, we're already short of help, the help that we need here on Sunday. So uh, just wanted, and it was important for me to stand in front of you today and kind of talk about our reasoning and thoughts behind that so you knew. If you have any questions about it, please uh, feel free to talk to me after the service. All right, so today we're going to kind of continue in uh, this series called Church Values. Last week, I kind of came before you and just kind of laid out some values that this church, as far as, as the transition from into my kind of as a, myself as a senior pastor, the leader pastor, I don't use the word senior, okay, lead pastor, I don't know what that, and Chad kind of phases out what this kind of church will look like. And, and we just said, hey, look, there are many of you in these seats And we are all different in some way. We all have kind of different passions, different beliefs. Uh, But for all of us who have been justified by Christ, we probably should consider trying to get along while we're on earth here. uh, Because when we get to heaven, there are going to be many of us in the same room together praising the same God. So not only smart for us to start getting along here, working together, unity Uh, but wise for us to bring great attention to Jesus. So we said that there are four things that going forward that we're going to kind of value as the kind of overarching goals that we're we're going for in this church, and they're not kind of revolutionary things. They were four things. These were our values, truth that guides. We came here last week and said that we believe that the Word of God, the Bible, is the dominant and preeminent source of what we know and do and believe here. And we're going to keep it that way. That it's the preeminent source of what we should consider the truth that guides our lives and guides our relationship. The second value is pursuit of godliness. We're going to kind of stretch that out today. The third was loving our neighbors. And fourth was the pursuit of, or no, (laughs) a generous heart. So we're not trying to make some clingy or catchy sayings here. We're not trying to provide marketing material. We just want to express values that are biblical that will kind of drive the direction of this church and all the ministries that are contained in it. So let's take some time today and kind of stretch out this value of pursuit of godliness, what it means and kind of what it doesn't mean, and then the implications for us as a, as a person and then us as a, a body of Christ. This word pursuit, not a word that we're not familiar with. We, we know the word pursuit, and it's quite an intriguing 
word, pursuit. When we hear the word pursuit, I don't know if, if you guys get this kind of urge to just go, ooh. And I've, you just flock to your TVs and your computer because some fool in California thinks he's going to outrun the cops. You know, I don't know if you hear the word pursue and think that, but that's kind of where I'm at. Can I just, a tangent here? I know I can do this. You're not going to tell me not to do a tangent, okay? When are we going to learn as humans that the moment that somebody says pursuit, that anybody in the news world or the media is instantly going to put a helicopter in the, in the air? At, maybe that would deter us from, from, from fleeing from the police officers. I mean, once a helicopter's in the air, where are you going to go that you're not going to be found? I mean, they even have those heat vision thingies on there, even in the woods. But maybe you guys are like me and become like an interactive watcher of pursuits and just kind of begin to critique the logic of the guy that's kind of fleeing from the police officers. Do you do this? Like, you know how to run from the cops better. Like, no, don't, don't do that ramp. What are you doing? Not the woods. They got that heat vision thingy. What are you doing? Okay, I'm the weird one. I'll take it. Okay, that's fine. I'll be weird in things, and I'm okay with that. Anyways, pursuit is something that we're, we know. It's also a reality that we live in. We like to pursue things in our lives. For us, maybe there are many things that we're pursuing. Pursuit of wealth, pursuit of success. Maybe it's a pursuit of a nicer car, a renovated kitchen, a newer house. And maybe it's other things like pursuit of charity or pursuit of justice. But just like in any pursuit, what and how we pursuit matters. Not just what and how, but why. And we want to bring those questions into this value of pursuit of godliness. So let's kind of go to the word, the truth that guides us in this pursuit of godliness, and kind of figure out why this value is here. Our subtext, our line, our subheading line for pursuit of godliness is in our deeds, or in our hearts, deeds, and words. We want to pursue God in all of those realities of our lives. So let's kind of turn to Colossians 3. I'm going to read a lengthier verse here, the first 17. And this, the first 17 verses in Colossians 3, these verses will be familiar to you. I think that almost every sermon that I've given from this platform, I've included Colossians 3 in some way. I believe that it's that important for us to have understanding of this verse because it brings us great depth and boundaries in Christian living. So let's get together and read this slowly. My wife constantly telling me to slow down, Steve. You're in such a hurry. I'll slow down. We'll read this Colossians 3, 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this opening part, just some kind of commentary here. What we're seeing is this command that if we have been raised with Christ, then we are to be something different. There should be a new way about us, something different than the life that we lived before, something in a pursuit of something greater than ourselves. And then it goes on to say, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, meaning like greed or jealousy towards something, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In other words, if we don't kill these areas in our life, they surely will kill us. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, 
wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Beautiful language of unity right there. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Lost my spot. (laughs) Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's our value of truth that guides. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Just really impactful verses here. So these verses are kind of calling us to a pursuit of the things that are above rather than the pursuit of things here on earth. Listen to the language in this. Set your mind on the things that are above. Put to death that is what is earthly in you. There is a kind of message here that's saying, turn, seek God, and it begins by kind of listening, listing these areas of sin that can we stumble on. And then it ends by telling us, put on these things, pursue after these things. And so the first step that we have to have in a pursuit of godliness is the first step that we have in all of our values. That first step is a belief that the word of God is the truth that guides our life. It's a broken record, I know it, but it's true. There isn't a reality that exists when one would pursue godliness if they did not believe to be true the things that God said, commanded, desires of his heart, his purposes. Why would you pursue godliness if you don't believe what he says is for our betterment? And so for us to move towards a godly lifestyle, we have to believe that God's truth is the words that guide our life. It teaches us about himself, who he is, what he's done for us, tells us who we are, his purposes and desires for us. And if we don't have that as a fundamental core belief in our life, then pursuing godliness just becomes a list of do's and don'ts and rules following that, that we just try to accomplish that's empty. But when we allow the Bible, the Word of God, to have weight in our life, when we permit the Word of God to kind of push up against us, to to produce by the Spirit of God this conviction in our lives of the area that we're falling short of His standards in, when we allow that to happen, the Word of God and the Spirit exposing our sin, exposing our disobedience, what it does is push us towards this godly grief that I have sinned against my creator, that I have sinned against my God. And that grief pushes us towards repentance that I've fallen short. And then in that turn, that we turn away from our sin, that we have remorse for that sin, that we don't desire that sin. But what happens in our lives as believers is that the old man is hard to kill. 
Like that old self is hard to kill. That, that, that sinful nature in us just wants to rise up within us and say, uh-uh, my way. And we fight against that spirit of conviction that is trying to push us and give us guidance in the process of maturation and sanctification, a pursuit of being more and more like Jesus. And so for the believer, we have to fight against the sin nature that wants to say, me, my way, and invite the Holy Spirit to work together with the the Word of God to push us towards this kind of personal holiness that we would pursue after Him, that we, when we feel the nudgings and convictions in our life, that we wouldn't fight that. We would welcome it and invite it into our lives and into our hearts to refine us, to to renew our minds. Sometimes we may make a mistake in believing this kind of outside thing that's trying to tell me how to live my life is unwanted. It actually is proof that the high surgeon of heaven, God himself, is working in your life to try to alter and shift our viewpoints, to to arrange our lives up with him. So we shouldn't despise despise that feeling. We should invite it, because ultimately it will be for our betterment. Now, if we allow God to work in our lives, it doesn't mean that we won't have extreme moments of pain in our lives. I think for those of us who know in that pursuit of godliness, those moments are present and probably more than we wish they would be. But in that pursuit, we find a freedom and a joy and a forgiveness of ourselves and others that is unmatched, unmatched by the pursuit of this world. And so the pursuit of godliness, first step is allowing our hearts and our minds to be transformed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. It is the truth that guides our life. In unison with the Holy Spirit, kind of bringing this friction of who we once were and who we are now as a new creation in Christ. And for us to have this pursuit as something that permeates our lives, as an objective that we work for, and I would even say a desire of our hearts, we have to have some shifts in our thinking. We have to have shifts in paradigms of our thinking and our motives. For some of us, we need some right thinking, some new motives, new, some new perspective in this area. And, and so here's how I kind of want to start with this. When I was in seventh grade, I was sub five foot, just four foot nothing. I was around 80 pounds. I was not an imposing character to say the least. You would not have been intimidated by me at all. After my seventh grade year of football, I remember being in my science class that was taught by the eighth grade football coach. We all know a prestigious position, I agree. Um, But he told me that if I wanted to start, and I don't know how this conversation happened and when the context of it was, but this is what I remember him saying. If I wanted to start as an eighth grader, I had to be 120 pounds. What? Like 120 pounds. And so I just remember he had this room off the side of his classroom, and I would go in there every day. Just the scale was in there, and I'd move the needles like, like 81, give me something. It was always 80, never. And I would just drink these carnation instant breakfasts. Would you? I was just, for some reason, I was instructed to drink carnation instant breakfasts that I was going to gain weight. And then just secretly, I was just praying, Lord, will you make puberty just come quickly? Because I had no chance. Now, I submit for you, to you, for your judgment, the inner motives of my eighth grade football coach towards small fry, seventh grade Steve. Might it be entirely possible 
<laughs> that my eighth grade football coach, my beloved coach, set a standard, a bar, which he knew that I had no way of accomplishing because he did not have the heart to tell me that there was no way that you're going to start as an eighth grader or play. My verdict leans towards yes, that it does. He didn't have the heart to tell me. And I tell you that story because I believe that many of us and most of us think that we should be more like Jesus. But the standard of Jesus is so high that there's no way that we could ever reach the type of perfection that he emulated. And you're probably not as naive as a seventh grade football player who dutifully serves as coach trying to achieve his mandate. You probably hear that standard and you know that it's unachievable. And it leads us to this thought that why should I even try? Because I'm just going to fail. And that thought kind of produces this idea that it's okay just to be okay. And that attitude just kind of forms a belief that God loves me just the way that I am, period. And I'm telling you, that isn't true. God loves you because you're his. He loves you because you're his. And that is independent on what you do. Independent. But he does not accept a lifestyle of sin. God hates sin. Don't confuse our God with your grandpa who overlooks your offenses and then gives you candy when you leave. God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. I love the, the classic novel by C.S. Lewis that probably many of you adults have read to your kids at bedtime, The Chronicles of Narnia. And in, in the book, in the movie, which I watched the movie, I didn't read the book, just going to let everybody know that, okay? In the movie, there's a line from a character named Susan as she's talking to a character named Mr. Beaver about Aslan, the lion, who represents God in these stories. I know, confusing, just go with me, okay? Susan asks the question this way, she wants to know if Aslan is safe. And Mr. Beaver replies with this, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good, I tell you. He is the king. Don't mistake God's grace to us as a sign that he isn't majestic and powerful. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For wherever one, whatever one sows, that will also he reap. If we continue to play around with sin, if we continue just to mess around in sin, it will destroy us. It will bring destruction into our lives. Sin kills, sin destroys, that's what it does. It has no other function to bring, but to bring havoc and destruction in our lives. Don't try to tame your sin. You can't. We have to kill it. And the Word of God and the Holy Spirit work together in a pursuit of godliness to bring that reality into our lives. Don't confuse God's extended hand of grace towards you as some get-out-of-free-jail card that lets you do whatever you want with a promise of eternity. God's grace is there to cover us as we move towards Him. All the grace that we will ever need, right, to move from this life of sin into a life of righteousness and peace with him. That is the pursuit of godliness. Paul writes in Philippians 3, 
Some beautiful words. Chapter 3, verse 12 through 15, he says, Not that I have already obtained this, or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I love that. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. I love what Paul brings to us in this passage. Paul is saying, look, look, I am not perfect, meaning that I have had struggles with sin in this broken world, but I press on to make his perfection my own. He is working towards it, and I love why he's working towards it, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And for us, this is an important theological shift and an important motive shift in our lives. Our pursuit of God in our hearts, in our deeds, in our words, comes from the knowledge that he first pursued you. He first pursued you. John 6, 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God has pursued you. Isn't that incredible? The reason that maybe you're sitting here today is because God stirred up within you a desire to say, look, I'm yours, man, and you are mine. He has pursued us. He has drawn us towards himself. He has bridged the the chasm between God and man because of our sin through his son, Jesus. Your ability not to cuss does not complete that relationship. He has already done it. We are debtors to his blood and his sacrifice. We are debtors to his justification. We are debtors to his grace. We are debtors to his mercy, none of which can we earn. So my pursuit of godliness comes from this belief that he is majestic and beautiful and his character is incredible. My pursuit of godliness comes from a belief that I absolutely need him. Every moment of every single day of my life, I need him. And in that pursuit, I'm telling you, I go deeper into debt of grace every single day that I walk. There's no way I can repay it. I just keep going into debt. Nothing else will do in my life. I know my sin. I know its plan. I know it has tried to destroy me. I have tasted the world, and I believe that it's sour and grotesque. And I believe the words of Jesus when he speaks them in Matthew 13, when he says that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. He's the only pearl I want. Now, does that mean that the sinful nature in me just doesn't arise and try to derail me? Absolutely not. But grace enables me to keep moving forward towards him. Remember, Paul? I, not that I've already considered it my own or that I'm perfect, but I press on to make it my own. So for us, if we're in here today and there is no desire to pursue after godliness, to become holy in some ways, if there's no desire to be obedient to the Father, to press on in this life towards Him, to kind of turn away from our sin, if that desire isn't there, then we have to ask ourselves some even harder questions. Like, do I even know God? Or do I just know about Him? Is He just somebody that I hope will bring me good things on earth? 
somebody that when things go bad, I just, I lean on him. But have you sold the farm? Have you sold what you own to make him your own? Or do you just want to do what you want to do and add the label of Christianity in hopes that you might get heaven thrown in? We have to consider that. Not out of judgment, friends. Not out of judgment, because of love from my heart. We have to consider that. If we have a desire to pursue after godliness in our relationship with him, great. Let's give him credit for that. But remember this, we don't get to act and do what we want to do because of his grace, love, and mercy. God's going to forgive it anyways. But because of his grace and love and mercy for us, right? Because of his grace and love and mercy for us, we begin to align our hearts, align our minds with him who called us, who drew drew us towards him. We begin to do that because of it. There is... There is an obedience to this Christianity thing that we can't keep trying to sweep under the rug hoping that it would go away. Peter writes very eloquently in his first, epi- first epistle, 1 first Peter, namely, in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. For those of us who know Christ, we know better. Don't keep seeking the same empty wells that you did in your previous lives as slaves to sin. God has restored you. If he has justified you, he has enabled you. You are a new creation. We are to act as such. Jesus himself in John 14 writes these words. These words are recorded. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come come to them and make our home with them. So this is what it means for us as this church as a value. We want to push you towards godliness. We want to help you pursue after this. So this is what it means. First and foremost, a broken record here. We want to make the word of God the truth that guides our life. In everything that we do, the Bible would be the centrality of all that we do. It has this ability to push up against this, to change the way that we think, to change the way that we act in unison with the Holy Spirit, convict us and push us towards Him. If God said it, if He commanded it, if it's a desire of His heart, then we who believe need to give it weight in our life. Secondly, we want to push all of us towards each other and openness. And that may sound extremely scary, like, no way, man. But listen, I know this in my own life. Sin and destruction hide in darkness. They hide. And if we are trying to live our faith alone, and we are not surrounding ourselves with people who are on this pursuit of godliness, who are loving us, encouraging us, grieving with us, and if we're not reciprocal in a loving relationship towards other people who are pursuing God, then all we are doing is, is creating a recipe for disaster. Sin loves to hide. And if we're not in the practice of exposing our hearts to God and exposing our hearts to each other, guess what? It just stays locked up inside of us and it begins to eat us and destroy us. We value this so much that it is one of our key values. It's part of loving our neighbors. And that's something that we're going to talk about next week. The third thing that means for us as a church is we will praise God 
here as a God of victory, and we won't make light of the struggle. Our God is a healing God. He's a refining God, a transforming God, and he will bring victory in the strongholds of sin in our lives. I know that victory personally, and there are tons of you out there that know the victory that God has brought you over sin. We will praise him as a God of healing, and we will worship him as a God that refines our heart, and we will not make light of the struggles of this world. We don't want to be a church that glorifies the struggle, but one that brings great attention to the one that brings us out of the fight. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle. That doesn't mean that that's a reality. Of course that is a reality. It just means we just don't want to be the kind of people that stay there. So let's not make light of our sin or, or joke about our sin. I mean, what does that communicate? We want to communicate stories of God's victory, of struggles refined, giving God the glory for what he's done in our life and who he is. And lastly, we want to be a church that prioritizes the pursuit of godliness over the pursuit of behavioral modification. I know that's a a long-term behavioral modification. We believe the pursuit of godliness starts with a right understanding of our hearts. Jeremiah 17.9, famous verse. Maybe you know it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus says in Mark 7, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. We have to understand that our hearts are broken and fractured. Our inner being wants to choose ourselves over God. We have to address the problem of the heart because the problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. If you just want to continue to fix yourself to make you look more virtuous or moral or to act appropriately, all we have done is mowed over the weeds of a busted and bruised human heart. And we have not dealt with the real issues that are heart deep. The problem is our heart. Your alcohol addiction isn't the issue. The issue is that you seek alcohol to comfort you and to cope with a poor understanding of who you are and your identity in Christ. Now, stop getting drunk, to be stop getting drunk is a wise decision for us. But it doesn't fix the problem if we don't replace it with a better understanding of our identity in Christ. All that happens in that scenario is that we just go on to replace that addiction with some other empty well of sin that brings us comfort and makes us think better of ourselves. Real pursuit of godliness isn't trying to fix ourselves to get better. It starts with the belief that I can't fix me. My heart is busted, and it's full of evil desires and disastrous thoughts. I need a new heart. I need a heart transplant, and that is exactly what Christ has done for us. That is what he's offering us, a new heart as a new creation with new ways and new thoughts and a new identity. So church, we want to value pursuit of godliness, to seek to obey the Father out of the delight of our hearts because of what he has done for us. He's done for us what we could not. 
He has made us whole. He has made us right. And there is no way that we could earn that. We can't earn it. But because of his majesty, because of his grace, his beauty, we seek the things above. We seek the things above because we need him. We absolutely need him every step. Let's take steps together as brothers and sisters towards God and bring great attention to Jesus in the process. And let's celebrate our victories here and be serious about defeating the sin that is in our lives. Let's work together. Let's be graceful with another. Let's encourage one another. Let's love each other. Someday, and that, may, that day may be sooner for some of us than others, I mean, we will die. It's just a reality. And the kingdom of God will be a reality at that point. The heavens and the earth will be as one. And all the things that Jesus taught us, all the things that he taught us and commanded us while he was here on earth, will be the reality in which we live in. If we don't give those teachings and and those commands weight now in our lives, what will that say about us in eternity? What Jesus teaches us when he says, pray this way, he, he says these words, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on where? On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is telling us that we need to bring the values of his kingdom, his kingdom, into our hearts, into our lives today, why we are still on earth. That we are to pray and work to advance the kingdom here on earth. And we do that by letting Christ reign in our hearts, in our lives as believers. That we would reflect his love, we would obey his commands, that we would honor him, that we do good for all and share the good news of his kingdom while we are still on earth. Please don't view this life as some sort of survival mission that you just have to hang on long enough to get there. And don't view this life as the one that you only get. Don't view this life as all you get, thinking I'm just going to get as much stuff, do as much things, party as hard as I can, and hope that I just put a sticker that says, I like Jesus, and hope I get heaven thrown in. We are to bring the kingdom here. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it starts in this life. It starts in this life. And it moves over into the next life. The things that you sow here will be the things that you reap in the life that is to come. The pursuit of godliness is steps towards him. Let's make him the reality of our lives the desire of our hearts now. Pray for that, friends. Pray for that. Seek it. Talk to people about that. Be open about your desire to do that. Don't miss this. He is not satisfied with leaving you the way you were. He has so much for you. He loves you because you are his. Now let's pursue after him. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you today and just ask that you would just stir up within our hearts um, a desire to follow after you, that we would get off the treadmill of of sin and, and just continuously jumping back on that, that we would seek you, seek your, your grace, your truth, 
that we would move from a life that is a slave of sin into a life where we are slaves of righteousness. God, I just pray for a revival in our hearts, that you would stir up things within us, that you would move us towards you. God, just bring godly people into our life that encourage us, that force us out of our box, that bring us up into the openness of exposing our hearts, exposing our hearts to you and to them. We love you, Father, and we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus, who did for us what we could not. Amen.